first five verses. Um, by the way, I'll, I'll take pity on you. I'll stop praying for snow, but only after Thursday. And then I'll stop. Because then I'll give a couple good days of sledding for the kids. And then I'll be content for a few years before I pray again. Maybe. Um, all right, so First Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pray this morning. Father, we pray that your word would go out this morning and that our minds would be renewed in it and that your glory would be made known. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of his spirit. Amen. So, last week we talked mostly about this issue of forbidding marriage and how it's become in vogue again with the the gay celibate movement within the evangelical world. But I want to talk through two things also going on here this morning. One is we tend to write off bad doctrine as just guys who have different opinions than us and just kind of have some different ways of thinking and looking at the world and that it's not that big of a deal. This has been the time and again problem of the church. There are those who have bad doctrine, those who defend bad doctrine, and those who say you should be nicer when you defend bad doctrine. Um, And over and over again, history has borne out the fact that we can't be nice about bad doctrine. And the reason we can't be nice is right here. Uh, What's going on is not just a guy saying bad things untrue things, unhelpful things. But at the root of things is deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. And I don't think we let that sit on our minds very much when we think, uh, you know, they're teaching some things that aren't good, but it's not that harmful. We all know that if anyone in here said that's demonic and could prove it, that we would all be very probably afraid of whatever that was. And also very sure that it didn't belong in the church, right? So if someone were to come in here and pretend that they were going to slaughter a goat in our midst for the sake of satanic ritual, none of us here would have any qualms with restraining the person from trying to slaughter a goat under a five-pointed pentagram in our congregation. We would all be very clear that that can't happen on a Sunday morning, especially in the worship of God's people. Now, let's just pull back the vein a little bit here. And Paul says that when men are teaching deceitful things, it's not just they themselves doing it, but it's demonic. It actually is the same sort of thing as someone walking in here with a goat and a pentagram and trying to sacrifice it on a Sunday morning. This stuff, when you have bad doctrine, it kills everything. It goes after everything. And you see it throughout the church's history. Whenever the church has succumbed to bad doctrine, 
She doesn't just become sort of weak, sort of inept. She becomes completely ineffectual, completely overrun with bad stuff. And I won't rehearse again. I rehearse it often. The history of the United States and the West in the last 150 to 200 years, we have done it. We have welcomed in bad doctrine by the truckload into the church and thought, it's okay, they just have different opinions. It was the, you know, the liberalism of uh, Schleiermacher in the 1850s. It was the fundamentalist controversy of the 1920s. It was the feminist controversy of the 1960s. It's the homosexual controversy, the Black Lives Matter controversy of our present day. And all the time we think it's just bad people saying unhelpful things. It's not just bad people saying unhelpful things. It's demonic. It's demonic. And if we begin to look at it like that, we will realize that there are no, um, there should be no holding back for the Christian in fighting against these sorts of things. Um, we, we sanitize the church's history a lot. But if you read guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Martin Bucer and uh, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, these guys who were the reformers in the 1500s, they did not cut down trees with hatchets. They mauled them down with tanks. They went after the bad doctrine with everything they had. Every weapon at their disposal was used. And this has got to be true for us, too. We can't be afraid that we're going to be looked at and despised for standing up for God and his word. We're fighting, right? We, use, we, we know the verse, you fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and princes of darkness and evil. Do we think that was just then that that was going on? It's now, and it's not just some book like This Present Darkness. It's real all the time. We are fighting for the souls of men and women, and the way that the devil does his bidding and does his work is through deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. And he does it by marring the word of God. We see it here played out in First Timothy. So uh, you remember when we first were starting to go through this, I made a big deal about having a good conscience. Um, so in chapter 1, right, uh, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is the beginning step of what happens in chapter 4. Men and women who have ideas and thoughts in their heads about God that have no ground in Scripture or good doctrine, who think themselves smart and say things they have no knowledge of, in all kinds of contexts. And then, because no one corrects them and says, no, that's actually not true, that's not good, that's not right, they begin to get more and more bold with their assertions. Um, this is true. I mean, you can trace this back into things like uh, um, uh, uh, Joseph Smith and the Mormon Church, right? Joseph Smith, you read his really early stuff, and he was just like, yeah, I think God spoke to me. And then by the end, he was like, listen, I put my head in a bag, and the angel appeared, and he spoke these things to me, and I wrote it down, and then all this stuff happened. He got nuttier and nuttier as he went. 
what was happening? Well, his conscience was bad. And instead of fixing his conscience, instead of going to God, confessing his sin, getting a good conscience, he did what happened in 1 Timothy chapter 4, which is through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, the teachings of demons entered. And so instead of when his conscience began to eat at him, Joseph Smith, instead of letting that convict him and going to God, going to the people and saying, I made it up, it's not true, this didn't happen. Instead, he just buys into it more and more because his conscience is seared and then the teachings of demons are unloosed on the people. And it's still there today, right? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is still here 150 years later. It is a big deal. They proselytize all the time. You know it. They've been to your house. It's not good. The, the danger of this comes because we tend to think that um, when we tell people that they may not teach that or they may not say that, um, that we're doing a disservice to them by snuffing out their thoughts. But what we are doing is teaching them that a good conscience is more than simply just knowing that Jesus forgives us. A good conscience is being corrected with the word of God and then actually repenting. That's how you maintain a good conscience. Your good conscience isn't settled because you prayed a prayer 50 years ago. Your good conscience is for here and now today. When you hear the word of God and you're convicted of a sin, your conscience is kept good by continual repentance. And what happens with false teachers, what happens with demonic teaching, is there is no repentance. There is no helping your conscience stay soft. It just continually hardens and continually hardens and continually hardens. And it leads to all kinds of bad things. Um, up into what is going on in the Ephesian church that Paul is writing to here, that men are forbidding marriage and forbidding the, and telling people to abstain from eating certain foods because they're unclean. This still happens, right? We talked all about this forbidding of marriage last week through the gay celibate movement and how it's like applauded and lauded and thought to be this godly thing, where in reality what we're doing to, to men and women when we say, don't get married, stay single, but don't do anything bad, is their conscience is constantly bearing against them. And it's saying to them, what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, what I'm believing is wrong. And we say, just don't get married. We don't want to have to deal with that. And the messy business of church is to say to that man or that woman, you may not think that way. You may not do those things. Marriage is good. You should work towards wanting to be married so that your lusts can be put away in a healthy way. That is very hard. It's much easier to let that person get seared in their conscience over here by themselves, by not giving them an outlet to confess sin, to have a good conscience, by just letting them sit over there and say, don't, 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 and especially don't talk about it. Don't, don't bring it in here. It's bad. And it ends with men who get more and more seared in their conscience. And it ends with men 
cooking up things like revoice and thinking it's good and godly and helpful. Their consciences are seared. They're not just bad. They're cauterized. This is a bad state to be in. The other thing that happens um, with uh, bad consciences is they think that everyone else has one. Right? This is the thief thinks everyone else is a thief. The adulterer thinks everyone else is an adulterer. The liar thinks everyone else is a liar. Um, people with bad consciences tend to think that everyone else has the same problem. And not everyone has the same problem. If you're not a thief, you don't think about stealing things all the time. If you're not a liar, you don't think about making up things that they'll tell people. If you're not constantly feeding yourself these sins, you, you don't have a bad conscience. You have a good conscience. You don't constantly think, you know, I, all these things are against me and I have nothing to come to God with. You say, I have these sins that I've committed and I've went to God and therefore I'm forgiven. Now, where it leads in the Ephesian church and where it leads constantly throughout history is these two things, the forbidding of marriage and the abstention of food, severity to the body. Um, where does that come modern day? What, what is this uh, abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving? Um, we live in Jasper, and as Daryl likes to say, he's glad he lives in Jasper because if the end of the world comes, he knows it's a safe place to be because everything happens in Jasper ten years later than the rest of the world. Well, I came from a town a third the size of Jasper, and so I guess I'll move back there when the end of the world comes to Jasper because it will still be another decade before it hits my hometown. Um, the, the reality is that there is and has been among pagans now being influenced into the Christian church a very significant war on food that is supposed to be received with thanksgiving. And it comes in lots of different forms. Okay, so, you know, when I was up north, I knew a lot of farmers. And they're big farmers, right? Many of the men I know farm between six and 10,000 acres. That's a lot of acreage. That's a lot of farming. That's a lot of beans and corn. There is no way, no way that that happens without things like genetically modified produce. Just can't happen. The world would starve without it. Now you might think, oh no, what, what are we saying here, Joe? I'm saying I know these guys who plant these beans and plant these corn. And I've talked to them about what they think about the stuff they do. What do they think about the plants that they plant? And all of them, to a T, say, Joe, there's nothing harmful in this stuff. 85% of beans planted today are genetically modified. 85% of them. That was... Seven or eight years ago. That was a guy who sold seeds. He was a seed seller for Broadback Seed Company. 85%. And there's this movement afoot that says, no, we cannot eat that. That cannot be good. And we begin to bring it in as a moral structure. Now, if you want to have your particular thing at your table where you don't want to eat specific foods, have at it. Do whatever you want at your own table. If you don't want to eat that produce and you want to eat this produce, you only want to source from a local farmer's market, great, fine, no problems. You may not 
you may not forbid the other people to eat what they would like to eat. And therein lies the problem. We were just talking about this this morning, or yesterday morning in the elder training, about the difference between legalism and just having a standard, right? You can have all sorts of rules for yourself and your family. As long as you are not imposing those rules and standards as law on other people, you have committed no sin. And so if you yourselves want to abstain from genetically modified corn, have at it. Good luck finding it, but have at it. If you want to abstain from X, Y, or Z for whatever reason, have at it. Do not, however, bring condemnation down on those who do not. This has always, always been a difficulty within the Christian community. This is the, the big brouhaha in the Corinth. Well, it's one of the big brouhaha's in the Corinthian church. Listen to how um, it's dealt with there. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers... Oops, sorry, I'm in the wrong spot. That was for Sunday school this morning. That wasn't for... Um. <laughs> Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as, those, as, as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Right? So, so far, everyone's going to be in agreement with Paul. Yeah, Paul, flee from idolatry. Of course. We all flee from idolatry. It's not rocket science. The cup of blessing that we bless, is, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is, sorry, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything. No. I imply that what the pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so it seems pretty clear at this moment, before we continue to read, that what Paul is saying is he forbids eating food, right? You can't eat that food and still be participating in communion. But he continues on because he wants to be very clear that that's not actually what's happening. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. That no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So he's not saying you can't eat bad meat sacrificed to an idol. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So you go to a pagan's house... Don't make a big stink about the food he serves you. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. 
for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. What he's saying is, when we're eating food, and somebody strikes up and says, hey, 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 you can't eat that. Don't you know where that comes from? Have you heard of Monsanto? Don't you know how evil they are? Don't you know about Roundup? Don't you know about this? Don't you know about that? Paul says, listen, you are free to eat whatever is set before you as a person of God, because it's thankfulness and the word of God that makes it holy to you. It doesn't matter who it was offered to, what they did before it hit the table. If it's food, you can eat it. But if someone besides you says, hey, did you know that was uh, Monsanto? And did you know blah, 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 blah? And did you know this and that and the other? Then you say, okay, I'll refrain. But you don't just leave it at that. You don't just bow over to this other person's conscience. You seek to inform their conscience that they might not bind yours. So in the moment, you don't eat. You're sitting at the table, and they make a big stink, and you go, okay, fine, I won't eat that corn. I won't eat that potato, whatever. Afterwards, you go to them and you say, listen, I know that it is your conscience can't handle this eating of Monsanto food, that you can't handle not eating whole foods, that you can't eating processed food. It's all God's. And you can't bind other men's consciences over this thing. You cannot bind men's consciences over this. And so what needs to happen is both being gentle in the moment and not making a big stink at the dinner table. But because of someone else's conscience, you should refrain at the time from eating. But you don't leave it at that. You don't let them begin to bind consciences. And what that leads to is exactly what happened in the Ephesian church. They let a couple of guys who were at the table say, hey, 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 we shouldn't be eating this meat. You know, it was sacrificed to uh, Artemis of the Ephesians, you know. Can't eat it. And so at the table, at the dinner table, in order to not make a big stink so that everyone could have a nice dinner together, no one says anything. And everyone avoids that meat. But then no one ever goes to that person and says, hey, you can't be telling people not to eat the meat. You can't say that. And so what does that person do that said to those dinner guests, don't eat the meat? Well, at the next meal he's at, he says the same thing, except for he says it louder and with more authority. And then he begins kind of having this little discussion all the time at church about foods and what's right to eat and what's good to eat. And then he begins to convince everyone that nobody is really allowed to do any of this stuff and that we really should all be bound together to oppose Whoever. That's when it is elevated to the point that it got to the Ephesian church. We have to be very careful to guard both our consciences and not to say to someone, you have to eat this meat, but also not to allow someone else to bind our consciences and saying, you may not eat this meat. Both are necessary in the church. Freedom of conscience, to have a good conscience is paramount for the Christian. Paramount for the Christian. So then, I may not say to you, 
You must eat the Monsanto corn. You may not say to me, you may not eat the Monsanto corn. Both are wrong and both bind consciences. We, as Christians, are not allowed to bind one another's consciences over things. We're not allowed to. And as far as food goes, so that you can be free. Because really, this is the aim. The aim isn't so that you have a weak conscience. It's so you have a good conscience. And so here is the truth, both in 1 Corinthians and for us here in 1 Timothy. God created... uh, They require abstinence from food that God created. And God created all food to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. God created all food to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Uh, my, my family, you know, when I was growing up, we, uh, we saw a lot of missionaries come through our house. Um, I don't really know how many, but there's several that are pretty ingrained in my head. And so I called my parents a couple weeks ago because I remember this story, but I don't remember who it's attached to. And apparently it wasn't one of the missionaries that stayed at our house, but it was a story that happened uh, at one of the like uh, missionary meetings that we used to have on Sunday nights when they'd have the, like, the slideshow, you know, and the next slide would go, and then the next slide would go. It's a lot of fun. Um, one of these missionaries, they lived, you know, out in the jungles somewhere. I don't remember where. My parents couldn't remember where. Um, but they were traveling in these jungles, and all kinds of stuff was set before them to eat. All kinds of animals and creatures and critters and bugs and vermin. All kinds of stuff. And the guy made a joke, riffing off of this passage in First Timothy, that he prays just to keep it down. Like, that's, that's his prayer of thankfulness. God, I'm thankful for the food. Help me keep it down. Let me not get sick at this guy's dinner table because of this food. And what a humble prayer that is, right? What a humble prayer for a guy who's just trying not to offend the guy across the table from him who just set down this disgusting whatever in front of him and said, Huh? Yeah? You want the eyeball? Eat the eyeball, you know, whatever it is. And the guy's like, Father, thank you for the food. You know, let me keep it down. That is, that is a humble man, right? Do we have that kind of humility when we eat food with people? Or do we judge them constantly on their choice of food? We have to guard against this. It's especially prevalent generationally. So my generation, you know, we, we get a lot of heat because of this. And rightfully so. We have major problems with food. We have a food snob culture. It's despicable. It's ugly. It's not good. It's full of people with bad consciences. Why would we pay? Just think about the realities of this. Why would we pay so much attention to things like food in my generation? And how they were prepared and where they were sourced and, you know, what went into the preparation. And is this fresh arugula? Is this ground arugula? You know, where did you get the meat from? Is it from a local guy or is it from this other guy? Did you have any antibiotics in that meat? Was it gone before? You know, all this stuff. 
Why are we so obsessed? It's because we have bad consciences. We have to have something to be righteous about. We have to have something that says, I'm good. Because everything else in our lives says we're bad. And so we cling to this ridiculous notion that keeping our food clean is going to keep us clean. It's just garbage. It's just garbage. Listen, everything made on this planet was made by who? God! And it doesn't matter if it was genetically modified or not, because who makes the rain come? God. Who makes the sunshine? God. Who causes the roots to grow? God. Who causes the leaves to grow? God. Who causes plants to flower? God. Who causes fruit and vegetables to grow? God. There is nothing on this planet that is not to be received with thankfulness. Nothing. Because if you do, if you reject these things, it's saying that what God has done is not good. And the reason we do it is because we have a bad conscience. We have a bad conscience. We have things on our conscience that are still there, and so we think, maybe if I keep my plate clean, it'll all be okay. We, we go to the physical stuff. It's exactly the problem of the Pharisees, keeping the outside of the cup clean when the inside was dirty as all get out. We keep a clean plate, we have a dirty inside. We say, don't get married, we have a dirty inside. What do we need? We need the gospel of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from sin. We need the church to help us to repent of things. We need the church to do the hard work of saying to people, by prayer and thanksgiving, all things are made holy by the word of God. Which means if your sexuality is all messed up and you thought you were a boy even though you were a girl, or you thought you were a girl even though you were a boy, and you got married and you did all kinds of stuff, and you mutilated your flesh, and now we have no idea what to do? I mean, literally, what would we do if someone came to us and said, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I made myself a man 30 years ago? You know what's really easy to say to that person? Don't do anything bad. Don't get married. That's really easy to do. Just leave him out there hanging all by himself. You know what's very hard to do? Say to them, you, you were created by God. And everything created by God is to be received with thanksgiving. And we receive you today. Not as you are, but as you were. And how God made you. And we will help you figure out how to live as God made you again. We will say to you, no, you sinned. And you did these things. You mutilated your flesh. How can we help you to live in a way that God wanted you to live 30 years ago? How can we help you have a good conscience about your sexuality? How can we help you have a good conscience about your food? By getting rid of the sin in your life. By saying to you, repent. Repent. Believe the gospel. Trust in God. And then we can actually be thankful. We can actually be helpful. We can actually be the church that God meant us to be. And I don't just mean here in Jasper. I mean across the country and world. We have a problem because we allow men and women to have their consciences bound 
to forbid them from marrying, forbid them from eating, and all the while we let their insides just stew with bad conscience and sin. We help people with bad consciences have good consciences. We leave them to stew, their consciences are seared. That's the difference. That's the difference the gospel makes. That's the difference the church makes. We have a duty. We are duty-bound to help people with bad consciences. Because we have a good conscience. Because we do believe that Jesus does forgive us when we confess our sins. And we do believe that everything is to be received with thanksgiving. Because God makes it holy with prayer. How good is our God to do this for us? Let's do hard work. Let's not do easy work that leaves men alone in their conscience. Let's help men get a good conscience. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together today. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. and.